Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you can make white people in America feel aggrieved or afraid or stressed out, they're going to choose a right winger. White people, white aggrieved or afraid or stressed out. On this special crossover episode with our friends at Bold Dominion, we examine the transition of power to Republican, Republican, Republican. You cannot win by appealing to the other party. We're joined by Nathan Moore. This is not a matter of Democrats staying home. 200,000 more people voted for Terry McAuliffe than voted for Northam. Catherine Hansen. It's sort of a similar sentiment to Donald Trump where you're a little bit tired of a Democratic politician and you want a businessman. And Arian Balloon. Trump broke politics for four years. From critical race theory and charter schools to what's next for the General Assembly. Go to my website to see my 12-point plan on picking my belly lint. All that and so much more on this special crossover episode with Bold Dominion. I'm Michael Pope. And I'm Thomas Bowman. And this is Transition Virginia, the podcast that has been examining the ongoing transition of power in Virginia politics since February 2020. And now, of course, we've got a new transition. Republicans are coming into power after the election. And we've got a dynamite crossover episode with our friends from Bold Dominion. We are joined by Nathan Moore. It's good to talk to you again, Nathan. Hey, good to see you, Michael. Well, see, ah, we're, uh, we're in different locations. Good to hear your voice, Michael. We're also joined by Catherine Hansen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And returning to the podcast, Arian Ballou. I leave the state of Virginia for, what, four, three, four months, and this is what we end up with? Yeah, the redistricting commission falls apart, and the Democrats lose their grip on power. So open question to the panel for anyone that wants to take this jump ball Why did this happen? Republicans swept all three seats. How did this come about? You know, Michael, before we totally jump into why, I think just a little bit more of what. um, You know, so we did see Glenn Youngkin win this by about two percentage points. That is uh, very different from last year when Biden won the state by, what, nine points? And very different from, you know, four years ago when Northam beat Ed Gillespie quite handily by a whole lot of points as well. Um, But you know, the other thing that happened here is that the General Assembly is going to switch hands. So it's not just that the governor and lieutenant governor and attorney general are all we're all won by uh, Republicans, but also that the, the General Assembly has gone from a 55 to 45 Democratic majority to probably a 51, 49 GOP majority. And so we're going to have 
half of the legislature and the governor's mansion, both in Republican hands here. Um, the other thing that, that I think I want to talk about just a little bit about what happened is the turnout was enormous. This is the highest turnout in a gubernatorial election going back 30 years. And so that was kind of the wild thing when I was looking up some of the numbers on this is that, you know, Terry McAuliffe, this is not a matter of Democrats staying home. 200,000 more people voted for Terry McAuliffe than voted for Northam four years ago. But Glenn Youngkin, on the other hand, 500,000 more people voted for Glenn Youngkin than who voted for Ed Gillespie in 2017. That means in 2017, the, the Republican candidate for governor got 1.1 million votes. This year's 1.6 million. That is an enormous increase. Now, why? Well, there's going to be a lot of uh, postmortem done on this over the coming years, frankly, uh, for the Democrats who just lost everything. <laughs> but uh, look, there's I see two big flaws in Terry's campaign strategy. One, he didn't give Democrats a reason to come out and vote for him specifically. And related to that, everything he did in his advertisements mentioned Glenn Youngkin by name, which is a huge no-no. You know, this is not my assertion. This is Campaign Basics 101. You never mention your opponent by name. And what he ended up doing is doing all of Glenn's work for him, tying him to the base, defining him as a base candidate, which meant that Glenn was free to just go after independents and moderates. There's going to be a lot to be said before the end of the day, but I think those two things are some of the biggest flaws in Terry's campaign strategy because it doesn't work to try to tie somebody to Trump when Trump's not in office anymore. Totally, totally agreed. Terry McAuliffe didn't provide an affirmative position when Youngkin did, even if those positions are are things I don't find good, like uh, sort of the the railing against critical race theory, charter schools, a lot of stuff that focused on children, which is worth diving into as, as well. But it got people excited to vote in a way that uh, McAuliffe didn't. And the Trump thing was a play that absolutely didn't work. Yeah, it's funny. The uh, I agree with both of you. We're just going to sit here and agree with each other all day. Well, wait a minute. Let me disagree with something. I have something to, I disagree with. Okay. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say disagree necessarily, but I, so Thomas said he didn't really give voters a reason to vote for McAuliffe other than Trump. And I, I mean, certainly agree that that's how people perceived it. I will say that the McAuliffe campaign did try to make the argument about increasing the minimum wage and paid sick leave and family and medical leave and hazard pay. And you did hear McAuliffe talk about that quite a lot on the campaign trail that did not pierce through to voters. And maybe he didn't make enough commercials about it. I don't know. But I mean, he actually did have a message out there somewhere, but it got lost in all this talk about Trump. Well, he got off message, Michael. Uh, so that there's plenty of things that he could have been running on. The Democrats in Richmond have had a lot of success uh, legislatively over the last couple of years they've been in power. But what he didn't get to do was frame everything the way he wanted to frame it. Because as soon as he said that parents shouldn't have a say in their child's education, it riled up a lot of parents who didn't understand the nuance of that. And Glenn capitalized on it. And education is always one of the top three issues in state politics every single time, right up there, along with jobs in the economy and transportation, or in this case, COVID. And Democrats are super, super upset that they feel like Republicans stole their issue. 
you know, when I was I was at the Democratic event out in McLean, the the not the victory party, but the anti-victory party, the losing party. And that was kind of the theme of the night was, hey, wait a minute. Education's our issue. How did they end up winning on education? And so, yeah, I think the ramifications of that are going to play out a long time. That's because it wasn't really education is the issue, Michael. It, it, it was this wasn't about funding for schools or making even like a George Bush ish, you know, no child left behind or equity sort of uh, message. It was a story about race, right? Well, yes and no. So you said it's not necessarily about funding for schools. Keep in mind that in Glenn Youngkin's victory speech, he did promise the largest ever education budget in the history of Virginia. He promised to expand school choice by having more charter schools. Dog whistle. So, I mean, there is a policy dimension to this, too. I mean, I, people got caught up in the in the racial element of it and banning a law school concept from public schools that's not taught there. So, I mean, it's easy to ban something that's not being taught because it's not being taught. So it's low-hanging fruit to ban it, right? In other words, it was a meaningless discussion about a, a topic that had no policy dimension to it. But- when Yunkin actually takes office, there are some policies there that he's going to pursue, or at least he's promising to in his victory speech. So, Michael, here's the thing, though. Like, like more money for charter schools in Virginia did not drive half a million people to vote for Glenn Yunkin. Fear about teaching black authors and fear about, about trans bathrooms, fear about uh, all the stuff that leads to aggrieved white suburbanites turning out to the polls, that's what drove half a million more people to vote for Glenn Youngkin. Well, wait a second. I, w- I would agree with you that all of the dust up about Toni Morrison definitely drove a lot of voters. I'm not distracting from that. Although you say the, the charter schools didn't really drive parents. Uh, and maybe that's true. But keep in mind the perception in the minds of voters to hearing Terry McAuliffe said, say he didn't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And there was this feeling among many parents that those Democrats and their big government bureaucrats and all this wokeism is sort of dominating schools. And, you know, there's the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates, and they want more control. The parents want more control. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of voters out there. I've talked to them on the campaign trail that really would like to see more charter schools. They would like to see public schools undermined, frankly, by moving that money out of public schools into charter schools. So, I mean, that is that is a policy way to address that particular concern that is in the minds of voters. No, Michael, (laughs) school choice is a dog whistle. Like it's a race dog whistle. The reason that they advance school choice is so that they don't have to send their kids to integrated schools. This has been a talking point since the Brown v. Board decision. This is not new information. School choice is a racist dog whistle. And so the fact that it's in Yunkin's list of promises is just one more reason tying Yunkin's education plan to racist dog whistle reaction. And the suburbs were 61% of the vote according to the exit polling on CNN Politics. Anyone in the household being a gun owner, 55% of the electorate said yes. Let's see. Education becomes a big deal. You've got college graduates at 49% breaking for Terry McAuliffe. No college degree at 51% breaking for Youngkin. Age, even bigger issue. 69% of the electorates, according to the CNN exit poll, were 45 or older. 31% were 18 to 44 Demographics is destiny. And what happened, frankly, is 
as far as the Democrats are concerned, they didn't get the right people out in those numbers. We haven't heard from Catherine Hansen yet. Let's turn the microphone over to Catherine. What did you make of the results of the election this week? From my understanding, just sort of doing work with Bold Dominion, I saw it as um, distrust in current Democratic executive leadership. I, from what I've heard, I don't think people are content with what's happening in Afghanistan, the general state of the economy, and how uncertain uh, future inflation might be. And it's sort of a similar sentiment to Donald Trump, where you're a little bit tired of a Democratic politician and you, you want a businessman, you want to shake things up. Yes, I think that's actually a really good way to look at the results because, you know, one thing that I always keep coming back to is that Virginia does have this very long history of having elections for governor following the presidential year and doing the opposite thing. That actually dates all the way back to 1977 after the election of Jimmy Carter when Virginians put Republican John Dalton in office. And ever since then, it's been this trend. So after the Reagan revolution, Democrat Chuck Robb was elected. And after Bill Clinton was elected president, voters in Virginia chose Republican George Allen. And then after George W. Bush was elected, Virginians chose Democrat Mark Warner. So there is this long history of doing the opposite thing of what happened in the presidential election with, of course, one exception. And that's after the reelection of Barack Obama, Virginia voters chose Terry McAuliffe. Democrats, of course, were hopeful that he would be able to do that same trick again but there's headwinds. So after a new president is elected, there's always, always this period in that first year when things fall apart and things don't go according to plan and you don't get the Build Back Better plan. And there's a reaction to that. And as Catherine was just saying, there's reaction to Afghanistan and there's sort of an unease and a tiredness with what the Democrats are doing. Add on top of that, the fact that Virginia has seen all of this sweeping change in recent years and that sweeping change, a lot of people are probably uneasy with getting rid of the death penalty and legalizing marijuana and doing all the new gun violence prevention measures and peeling back all those restrictions on abortion. And that's a that's pretty radical change that's happened in the last two years. And a lot of voters are uneasy with that and reacting to that. I would, yeah, I think there is something to what you're saying, Michael. I, I, I think I, I take it as a from a slightly different angle, but, um, but Catherine's definitely onto something here with this race being very, very nationalized, you know. And we saw that like so many things that drove people to the polls and that drove the votes this time around weren't really issues specific to Virginia. It's like if the issue was about the economy, I mean, our economy's not in the dumps. Why is Yunkin the guy for the economy? You know, I think you're right. This sort of malaise with National Democrats and and Cinema and Mansion holding up the Build Back Better plan, flubbing the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, I think these are things that impacted the Virginia election, even though they're not Virginia specific, specific issues in any particular way. I think the other one, though, and this is kind of getting back to what Thomas was saying earlier, the terrible campaign choice that McAuliffe made to use Trump as a boogeyman all the way up until like Monday. You know, I mean, I saw a sign here in Charlottesville that literally said like Yunkin equals Trump. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why do they have a Yunkin sign? Oh, it's Yunkin equals Trump. You know, it's like, why is that the message going out there? It's doing the work to, to build that base for Yunkin. And, you know, Bob Lewis over at the Virginia Mercury had a great line about this. He said, you know, if you're trying to, to rouse the villagers to go fight Grindel, you know, what happens when Grindel's not there anymore? You know, then you have to have a positive vision, a proactive vision of, of what your state's going to be. And Michael, you talked about some things that McAuliffe 
said in some speeches and stuff. But honestly, the message I got over and over was like, hey, things were pretty good when I was governor. Let's do that again. You know, and let's not let this uh, Trumpish guy run the state. I mean, sure, that's enough for me to vote for for somebody, maybe, but but not enough for a lot of people. And I think what you're seeing, though, and this is, Michael, I think where I, I do tend to agree with what you're saying is, is if we look at the political values of a lot of people in Virginia, uh, you know, why did Virginia uh, break by nine points, 10 points over these last several elections for Biden or for Northam? I don't think it's because Virginia suddenly became a place, you know, committed to equity and progressivism on the whole, although a lot of people in the state do have commitment to those things. I think, though, a preeminent political value in Virginia is politeness and also sort of a, a sense of incrementalism and status quo. We don't want to be the last in the pact, at least not since Loving v. Virginia. Uh, we don't really want to be the first either. And so that sense of kind of being somewhere in the middle of the pack and, and being sort of level-headed about things, that plus politeness seems to really be what resonates with people. Northam, polite guy. You know, he was going to be level-headed. Biden, polite guy. He's going to be level-headed. Not that McAuliffe's not, but um, but I think you had Youngkin who, who was riding that sort of backlash and, and white lash into office because of national reasons. So he's sort of like a Trump light. He's much more polite and, and well-mannered than Trump and could actually string a thoughtful sentence together and make it an actual case, you know? And so I think that drove a lot of things, especially as they pounded home with a sledgehammer, a lot of these culture war issues over and over and over. Trump broke politics for four years, right? And like this uniquely hateable figure in his affect, just as much as in his policy for whatever he calls policy. And that worked to elect Joe Biden nationally because not that many people were super excited about Joe Biden except in opposition to Trump. Terry McAuliffe's campaign tried to pull that a year later, and shockingly, the sort of oppositional politics didn't work because Youngkin is not Trump as much as they tried to do it. He didn't rile people up in the same way and just didn't get out as many people to vote. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about what a Terry McAuliffe campaign would have looked like had it not been so focused on Trump. We'll also ask what the general election campaign would have looked like if somebody else other than McAuliffe got the nomination. Plus, we'll talk about what college students and young people think about the current political state. And we will look ahead to the general assembly session for 2022. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it's time for... The Blame Game. 
Democrats gathered at the Hilton in Tyson's Corner were quick to start placing blame for who was responsible for Republicans sweeping all three statewide races and probably also taking over the House of Delegates too. Some say it's time for Democrats to look at what they've been doing and figure out what's not working. One of those is Secretary Brian Moran. Voters rejected some of our package. Obviously, we have to review that. So, you know, the same thing holds for Congress. They haven't been able to get bills passed. And, you know, you got to be able to show voters reason to vote for you. And uh, so I'll, I just suggest to National Democrats, they should really look at particularly our suburban voters for Fairfax, Prince William, Virginia Beach, uh, because if they don't heed and learn from what happened here today, uh, they may very well suffer the same fate. What do they need to learn? Well, that's we're going to take a look at the votes and find out what happened. But you cannot lose education. That is bread and butter. Health care, education, safety. That's what Democrats talk about. That's what we care about. There are values. And uh, we just cannot forfeit those issues. The idea that Congress is to blame for not passing the Build Back Better agenda before Election Day, well, that's an idea that's not shared by Congressman Jerry Conley. You don't think it was Congress's failure to act? You think it was something else? Oh, no. The average Virginian voter didn't go in saying they didn't act, so I'm going to vote Republican. No. So what was it? Well, there are a million things. And you want to, you want to do an hour-long interview? I'll be glad to go over it with you. <laughs> I know you will. Know I'm not going to give you a 20-second cheap answer to a very profound question. You know, we have to explain how a state that went for 10 points for the Democratic nominee for president one year ago is turning to a Republican for governor one year later. Just how to explain that loss is a vexing question for Democrats. Many say Democrats fumbled the communication strategy. One of those is Fairfax County Board of Supervisors Chairman Jeff McKay. The messaging on it was wrong. I would have fought back a lot harder. Explain that. What would you have done I, different? I, look, knowing how our school boards operate, it is nonsense, nonsense for any parent to ever think they're not going to have access to their public schools, to their teachers, to their principals, to their school board. I have two kids in Fairfax County Public Schools. I have never had a problem gaining access to any of them. That's different than me walking into a classroom and telling a teacher how to do their job. And what the message was that Glenn Youngkin had out there was that parents should be able to walk into kids' classrooms and tell teachers how to do their job. Now, McAuliffe clearly did not want parents telling schools what they should teach, and he said as much in the second debate. Many Democrats say that was the moment when everything turned. One of those Democrats is Delegate Kay Corey of Lake Barcroft. Education is traditionally a Democratic issue. How did they steal this issue from it you? It is. It is. I think Terry made an unfortunate remark and that started it. Because before that, there really was not any talk about this on this scale. The scale of the victory was not huge, but it's a win either way. And Democrats are going to have years to figure out who owns the blame for that loss. friend of the podcast, Sarah Taylor, and you're listening to my favorite podcast about Virginia politics. And I'm not just saying that because sometimes I'm a guest. Transition Virginia with Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman. 
And we're back on Transition, Virginia. We're doing a crossover episode with our friends at Bold Dominion Podcast. Now, I want to do a thought experiment and think about what the Terry McAuliffe campaign would have looked like had it not been so singularly focused on Trump. And instead, they tried to build a messaging campaign around raising the minimum wage, paid sick leave, family medical leave, hazard pay. What would that have looked like? Would that have been a successful message? So, Michael, I think that's a, it's interesting that you frame it that way because Democratic priorities do tend to take on this form of a grab bag of, of, of policy list items, like a grocery list. And honestly, I think that's a, a, to the detriment of a lot of Democrats. What it needs to be better for Democrats to win and to thrive is to have a, a vision for like a proactive vision of a society where, where, we, where we have shared prosperity and where everybody can thrive. And the details kind of work themselves out. You don't see Republicans introducing a plan with like getting into the weeds of the details. What you see is like they're appealing to values. Democrats need to appeal to those values of fairness, of an America where everybody has a shot, of a place where, where we all can thrive together. Oh, yeah. If I hear one more candidate say, go to my website to see my 12-point plan on like picking my belly lint, like, oh my God, like nobody's doing that. Nobody is going to your website to read your stuff except for people like you and me and Michael and like, like a very small number of people just to see what they wrote. Thomas, I actually make a point of avoiding people's websites because if they're, if they're, if it's not coming out of their mouth, a consultant probably wrote it and they're not even aware that it's on their website half the time. So, I mean, I actually always really focus on what comes out of people's mouths as opposed to what's on their website. So here's the thing, Michael, you asked if McAuliffe had made those claims, uh, the, the sort of uh, promises would it have worked. I think it, it would have gone better. But here's the problem is that you've got McAuliffe is the sort of Clinton ally incrementalist. We, uh, Youngkin was the CEO of Carlisle. Uh, McAuliffe donated a bunch or like invested in Carlisle Group. He is part of that group. And so he's part of the sort of general disaffectation. Is that a right, the right word? With um. You know, I don't think people buy it. You look at, you talk about minimum wage, you talk about paid leave. You look at Democrats right now, they failed on the, the $15 minimum wage. They are currently paid uh, family and medical leave is out of the Build Back Better plan. Like these things are not getting done. So I, I mean, I don't know if people would have bought it because it's, it's not happening right now. Uh, can we do another thought experiment? Because the first one was so much fun. What if, <laughs> what if Terry McAuliffe didn't win? the primary for governor? What if it was like a Jennifer McClellan or a Jennifer Carol Foy or even a Lee Carter? Like what what would a different winner of the Democratic primary have looked like moving forward into the general? Well, let's start with McClellan because I just listed three. So let's start with McClellan. Um, what would a Jennifer McClellan versus Glenn Youngkin campaign have looked like? Uh, I'll be honest, I don't really recall all the details of each of those candidates all that well. I mean, Jennifer Carroll Foy, maybe I, I knew a little more about. I think for me, what it comes down to, regardless of the specifics, is, is and this is really for any candidate, can, can a Democrat articulate a positive vision of a, of, a, of a better America? And you saw that in Obama at the national level, and he rode that to winning twice. Uh, he even saw Biden. God bless him. I mean, he managed to put together a coalition of people around this Build Back Better. It's a, it's a little corny. It's a, got you know that alliteration thing going on, but is real, you know. And you could say it, and you know what it means, and you know it's like you know in the the best interest of people's real needs. I never got that from Terry McAuliffe this time around. Would you have gotten that from Jennifer McClellan? 
I don't know. Um, I mean, I thought I might have gotten it from Foy, but I don't know. We did some interviews with the various candidates. I thought McClellan had sort of a solid sort of progressive, but closer to that sort of centrist, more moderate take. I thought Jennifer Carroll Foy didn't articulate an, a, a, of that sort of vision that you were talking about outside of, she was talking a lot about shots in arms at the time, which COVID is no longer on the table as a campaign issue, as we're finding out. Lee Carter had a lot of these economic things that I am partial to, but he may also have been a pretty divisive figure uh, in the Democratic Party. It's hard to say how things would have gone, but McAuliffe, this was, I mean, talk about blowing what, what should have worked. Yeah, I don't think we had the right candidate, frankly. I don't really like playing the game of, you know, what if it were a different nominee? Because the reality is there's no way we can possibly say. We don't know what the issues would have been. You know that they would have, like, they already leaned into like racist dog whistles on the Republican side on Youngkin's team. It would have been probably 10 times worse with one of the other candidates. And the reality is, or, or like socialism is on the ballot type of thing. And so the reality is, I don't know that any of the alternatives to Terry changes the outcome, even though it's a very popular hot take on Twitter right now. I don't like, I, I don't, I neither agree nor disagree with it because it is so abstract at this point moving forward. It's almost like it's useless, you know, because, <laughs> because none of the candidates really did a great job of articulating that vision. Terry won handily uh, from the primary. So it's give whatever reason you want. Like he was the clear choice. I mean, my my take on this is if your sort of clear choice with every kind of establishment backing that you could possibly ask for, the, the, the highest paid sort of consultants, everybody on your team working, in theory, the best possible campaign, and you still, you know, like blow it, 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 it certainly makes me sort of at least wish we tried something else. I, I respect that for sure. <laughs> hey, I want to uh, 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 switch around just a little bit, if you don't mind, y'all, and, and actually ask um, Arian and, and also Catherine a little bit more about kind of the, the take you're hearing from today's college students and young folks. I mean, y'all are in your early 20s joining us uh, relative oldsters. Am I the senior person in this, in this show? I think I'm probably the senior person, Nathan. Really? Okay. Let's not exchange ages. We'll do that offline. No, we're not, no, not going to do that. Here. Um, anyway, but but we're definitely not the junior people. Aaron and, and and Catherine, Catherine, let's start with you. Like, what are you hearing from 20 year olds right now about about this race and kind of what you saw at UVA during all this? Well, I'll be perfectly honest. I have been a little bit holed up in the library because it's uh, exam week. But you know, from what I've seen, it seems to be sort of carrying out in this uh, culture proxy war between you know groups like University Democrats and University Republicans, and then this uh, ideologically conservative group, Young Americans for Freedom. So it all sort of came to a head via social media last night, where and when the results came out, it was a little heated. But to be perfectly honest, today was was almost kind of quiet in the aftermath. Um, I think the biggest question that's being asked right now, and this might not be representative of the population because I'm a 20-year-old woman, is just what's going to happen to women's reproductive rights in the future. I think that um, a lot of young people are sort of looking towards Texas and wondering what that's going to mean for our state. Ariane, what are you hearing from your peers? People I work with for most of my days are, are older than anybody else in this call. Uh, public radio is, is like that. But what I've seen from at least internet circles and, and those I check in with there, a lot of it is sort of this was uh, similar to what I've been talking about in terms of this campaign, talking about Trump, 
didn't do it. You know, there's a lot of sort of playing defense uh, because all of the current takes you'll probably see on CNN and 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 sort of the, the the lesson that the Democratic Party will somehow take from this is that McAuliffe and or Biden somehow went too far left. Um, despite sort of the aforementioned Build Back Better getting gutted, McAuliffe, I think, explicitly saying that he wouldn't repeal right to work. So most of what I'm seeing is sort of defensively, like preemptively saying that is not sort of the problem here. Thanks, y'all. And I wanted to, to take it back to Catherine. So as we kind of look towards what's next uh, in all this, um, you know, Catherine, thinking about about women's reproductive rights issues um, and, and the generation that still has a lot of years to, to live through it, um, what are you concerned about? What do you think comes next from this? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, from what I understand of Glenn Youngkin's politics, it really sort of, I, I hear the the culture war issues, you know, the critical race theory, things we've talked about. Um, I had a friend who, when we found out that Glenn Youngkin won, asked what was she, like, we were just kind of chatting and someone asked, what do you think is going to happen next? And everyone was just sort of like, I don't really know. I don't think anyone has a clear, I, you know, people are just sort of in general disappointed. I mean, at least within my circles, people are disappointed that Glenn Youngkin has won, but everyone is unsure about what it means. And so we're looking towards Southern states, you know, governors like Brian Kemp. And, you know, we look towards what's hap- happening in Texas right now with women's reproductive rights specifically. And we're using, uh, you know, deep Southern states and trying to figure out what our future is going to look like based on what theirs look like right now. And this is maybe where we can turn it back to some of our, our Richmond insiders, Michael and Thomas, uh, because we do still have in Virginia a state Senate that has a majority of Democrats. The state senators were not on the ballot this time around. Um, and we also have a Republican House that's only going to be a one or two seat majority. So what do you see coming down the pike with all this? Well, I think past is going to be prologue. And when the Republicans had the House before, you had a Senate that comparatively was a very liberal Senate and they passed a lot of very liberal bills, you know, cynically, you might say, because they knew it wouldn't pass the House and there was no political consequence to doing so. And notice that it didn't necessarily go that way when the Democrats gained control of the House and they had to kill everything. So what I think is you'll just see them go back to the way they were is like the Senate will be in control. The House will be in disarray because looking ahead, there's really only this one session and any specials that get called next year, then there's going to be redistricting. And we have no idea what these districts are going to look like because the Supreme Court's going to draw them. You know, when I'm in Richmond covering the General Assembly, I would always prefer to be in the House because the House is a lot more fun. It's more lively. There are more colorful people. There are more colorful speeches. By contrast, the Senate is kind of dull and um, not nearly as exciting and the personalities are not as vibrant. However, I usually end up spending most of my time in the Senate because that's where all the news happens. And uh, that is going to be even more the case in this situation where you've got a Republican governor and a Republican House. And guess who's going to stand in the way of the Yunkin agenda? The Virginia State Senate, the Democratic-led Virginia State Senate, is going to take on a huge importance that it did not previously have. And it's ironic because in the era of Democratic control, there was a lot of angst and progressives being very upset with conservative Democrats in the Senate standing in the way of things like the assault weapons ban, overturning right to work, collective bargaining for state workers. These are things that conservative Democrats stopped. 
And those are parts of the progressive agenda that did not happen because of these conservative members of the Senate. And they took a lot of incoming for all of that. So it's ironic that those same conservative Democrats will now be the firewall for for the Democratic Party to stop the Republican agenda. And it's going to be tight because they no longer have the lieutenant governor to break their ties. And they've got this one very slim one vote majority in the Senate. So they're going to need all of their votes, including one particular senator who is going to emerge as probably the most important guy in Richmond, Senator Joe Morrissey, and you are going to want him to vote your way because he's going to end up being the swing vote on just about everything that goes through the General Assembly. So what do you, that is, actually, this is fascinating to see, you know, the, the, the state Senate is going to, you're right, there's going to be a lot more news stories about that, about the conflicts that are there with the Republican-led House. I'm thinking back to when Terry McAuliffe was in office and had at least one House in, in Republican hands through most, if not all, of his term. I'm thinking 2014, 2015, 2016. Yeah, the House was Republican-controlled for the entire time McAuliffe was- That's right. That's right. That's right. So he was trying to get things done and really just couldn't. I mean, the Republicans were just the party of no right. for all those years. Uh, that was kind of the joke. You know, Bill Howell just, you know, just like, like he's like a wind-up doll that just says no. Is that what's coming uh, where the Democrats become the party of no? The Democrats becoming the party of no in the Senate, maybe. That's what I mean. Yeah. So the House, so here's what's coming, at least for the House. The House is always far more parochial than the Senate is, and it always will be. And so you have a lot more dynamic and potentially extreme personality in the House on both the Republican and the Democratic side. The progressives got a lot of the attention in the House under the Democrats because of how bold their agenda was. And you saw a lot of very bold things come out of the House that couldn't pass the Senate. Well, guess what? The exact same thing happens when Republicans are in control. It's just very, uh, from my perspective, extreme right-wing bills uh, from the other side. And so not only is the Senate going to be that backstop, uh, because it'll be kind of like when Bob McDonald was in charge, when the Republicans had full control of everything except for the Senate, it all falls to the Senate to broker every single deal, which means you got to keep not just Jim Morrissey, but Chap Peterson happy too. And the House is going to be the House, which means the people who get to be in the room are going to be, it sounds like Speaker Gilbert, uh, which really hurts to say. Or Speaker Kilgore. Well, if Dems were smart, they would nominate Kilgore before they nominated Eileen. But I don't see that happening. Anyway, the people who get to be in the room now are going to be the Republican speaker, Dick Saslaw and Tommy Normit, and of course, whoever the governor's representative is to broker all these deals, which means it's all going to look more Republican. So the probably the best outcome for the next four years is for the Senate to just stop everything. I'm curious, uh, you know, we saw a little bit of this with Terry McAuliffe when he was facing Republican majorities in, in the House all those years. Uh, where he ended up just trying to do some things just on his own. But, you know, what do we know about the powers that the governor has here in Virginia? Just as far as what Yunkin without a law being passed, what can Yunkin actually do? I mean, certainly he can veto other laws, but that's less going to be a thing this time than, than otherwise. Governors actually have way more power than most people think that they do. Um, especially the Virginia governor has a particularly 
powerful set of um, things that he or she is in control of, which is why they've got that one term limit. Virginia is the only state in the country that has this one four year term limit. So huge powers, but it is limited. So, you know, on we, we hear Glenn Youngkin always talking about his day one agenda on day one. He can't ban quote unquote critical race theory. I mean, he, I mean, this is a law school concept that's not taught in, in public schools. But even if he wanted to, quote unquote, ban this law school concept from public school classrooms, he actually would need to go to the General Assembly and have them be part of it first. Right. I mean, it's like he's, he's not a king. Right. So what what tell me more about the powers and the things that he can just kind of carry out. I mean, he could appoint new people to the State Board of Education. He could appoint new judges uh, when there's an opening. I mean, what what kinds of things does the governor have all this power you talk about? Well, one of his one of his campaign promises is to get rid of the parole board. And I think we can see that coming down the pike here. Yeah. And the one I'm kind of losing sleep over well, are two things. One, coronavirus. The COVID policy, I'm very worried, is going to look a lot more like DeSantis's than Ralph Northam's, who, in my opinion, wasn't even doing it perfectly. And so now I'm worried things get worse. But also think back to January 6th, when nobody was going to stop what was happening on the Capitol. It was Ralph Northam who sent out the Virginia National Guard. Is Glenn Youngkin going to deploy the Virginia National Guard in the next time? Sure. And yeah. And what about the next wave of coronavirus? Is he going to require masks in schools? Is he going to require teachers be vaccinated? I mean, these are all things that could play out. Or fight it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're getting into the really uh, the shockingly core issues around public health and health of democracy, too. The kind of power of the state is is pretty substantial. And the, the executive is the one who makes those calls. All right. Uh, are you all ready for takeaways? I'll start with the takeaways because mine is probably a little bit more prosaic than everybody else's, um, which is Virginia being a counterpoint. I think it should not be overlooked that Virginia always does this. You know, it reacted to the Reagan revolution by giving us Chuck Robb and it it reacted to the era of Bill Clinton by giving us George Allen and it reacted to George W. Bush by giving us Mark Warner. This is a thing that Virginia does. It says, we see your presidential election and we're going to do the opposite thing. And that almost always happens with only one exception. And I think people forget about the magnetic pull of that. All right. My takeaway on this one is you cannot win by appealing to the other party. The McAuliffe campaign tried to position itself as the moderate, safe choice that some Republicans could vote for. But guess what? That was a campaign plan for the nominee being Amanda Chase. They never switched it up. Every election is a base election. So if people are going to get juiced up to vote for you and you're a Democrat, you need to run like one. You need to have issues like you're a Democrat. You need to talk like it. And none of that happened. Arian, how about you? What's your takeaway from all this? I'm very much with Thomas on this. My takeaway is that you have to run like a Democrat. But honestly, the Democrats have not been running the way the Democrats need to for a while. And they need to do something different. They need to buck the, the trends that uh, Michael was talking about because we are frankly running out of time to learn this sort of lesson that we're learning with uh, McAuliffe and the legislature right now. Like we need to do something different and, and better. Catherine, what's your takeaway from all this? I mean, I agree with you, Thomas. I think that um, Terry McAuliffe needed to step it up, but in a bigger sense, it's a reflection of the national and just general sentiments towards Democrats and the executive. And Nathan, what's your takeaway? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a bunch of them, uh, but but really, I think there's there's a few things here that I that I saw play out, um, and one is a very old truth about politics in America, which is that if you can make white people in America feel aggrieved or afraid or stressed out, they're going to choose a right winger, uh, and they're going to do it in large numbers. And I, I mean, there was more turnout for governor this year. Whatever this, you know, the the, the schools conversation, which McAuliffe just handed them, that lit a fire, that lit a bomb that that sent people to the polls. Another sort of takeaway from all this, I think, is that really the the, the technocratic management model of democratic politics, and this is much like what y'all were saying, that model that's kind of grew out of the Clinton era and that McAuliffe represents and is tapped into, I, I don't think it's a winning strategy for the long haul. What we need is a politics that's built around people's needs and, and is movement driven and built on relationships, not on technocratic management. And then the last bit really is just, you know, as we look through, I'm always trying to, to get a handle on, figure out what are the values that are driving people here in Virginia? If you want to do anything in public life, what is it that you can speak to that's going to make this work? Um, and I think there are some shared values here, but, you know, they're, they're definitely not that like Virginia's like out in front on, on lefty stuff right now. I do, though, think there's a, a real keen interest in treating people right and being fair um, but also above that, even being polite and kind of like not rocking the boat too hard. And I feel like that not rocking the boat too hard and being polite is what really ran the show this week on Election Day. Yeah. Well, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this crossover episode. Likewise. Fun times. So that's all for this episode. Hit us up on social media or get in touch at transitionvirginia.com. There you can check the transcripts for this episode and find links to support the show on Patreon. Special thanks to Emily Cottrell, who transcribes every one of these so they're accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to Transition Virginia. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. We'll be back next week, so subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. Transition Virginia is produced by Jack Leg Media, LLC.